thanks for pressing play. If you have a different mind and value real dialogue, you're in the right place. As children, most of us had a wide-ranging kind of interests and ideas and dreams. Most children want to do and be a lot of things. And yet somehow, life can beat us up. We can sell out our dreams. Sometimes we even settle. Norman Cousins teaches us, Death is not the greatest loss in life. The greatest loss is what dies inside us while we live. As a girl, Sylvie Lieton won a gold medal in ballet from France's National Conservatory. A little later in life, she became a visiting scholar at Stanford's Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. And today, she is a healthcare entrepreneur with a deep background in engineering, robotics, artificial intelligence, and product marketing and management. She's also a published poet. And she's been described as a polymath. A polymath is a person of wide-ranging knowledge. And Sylvie is a cancer survivor who is committed to transforming the health care experience for people of color. You see, as a woman of color who got life-threatening cancer, Sylvie has had a front-row seat to the racial injustice faced by minorities in the American healthcare system. So, like other legendary missionary entrepreneurs, Sylvie decided to do something about it. And she founded a company called Equify Health. And now she's on a mission to, quote, elevate the experience and outcomes of patients of color in healthcare and medical research, end quote. The legendary Sylvie Lieton, I would tell you, has a black belt in being different. And on this episode, we have a very real, very deep and personal conversation about empathy, connection, survival, entrepreneurship, and a lot more. We also talk about how Sylvie recently won a very prestigious $750,000 grant from Genentech for her new company and why she thinks they can change the future. I was introduced to Sylvie by my friend uh, and venture capitalist or entrepreneur turned venture capitalist, uh, Duncan Davidson of Bullpen Capital. And when he said AI, robotics, entrepreneur, ballerina, on a mission, <laughs> I knew I had to meet her. And what follows is a conversation unlike any other that I've had or you will hear. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And in the words of Joey Ramone, hey ho, let's go. Well, Sylvie, it sure is wonderful to see you. Likewise. You have a big smile on your face today. Is that for any particular reason? Oh, I guess it's uh, International Women's Day. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm happy because I've, I've been looking forward to speaking with you. I've been looking forward to speaking with you very much and happy. You're an international woman, so happy International Women's Day. Thank you. <laughs> it's a great it's a great way to celebrate. <laughs> uh, well, I'm 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 very honored that you're celebrating with me and so I have a thousand things I'd love to get into with you but um before I start what what's on your mind Sylvie? On my mind right now um I guess I'm really excited and happy because I feel that I'm living my dream. Um and it's just a wonderful feeling. Um, I, um, you know, you spend your life searching for your purpose and then one day you find it and it's just so beautiful. I feel blessed. Wow. Now you've already lived such an extraordinary life and you've done many things that I would have thought would have, uh, come with a tremendous sense of purpose. So I'm curious, what is it about what you're doing now that has you feeling this way? Yes, you know, it's interesting. I think that I I thought I loved what I was doing before because I was passionate about it and I was doing it well. So there was some satisfaction in, in that way. But I have discovered a, a new dimension, like um, 
I feel really connected to to the world. You know, like I'm a citizen in the world now and I'm doing something to make this world a better place. And it gives meaning to my life and it gives me inspiration. Um, it really lightens my life. And uh, I feel like, you know, I've done a lot of different things in my life. And they were very disparate because I have a lot of different interests. Um, and it feels like it's coming together that all of those kind of like random things, now I can actually use them to do something that people wouldn't have thought about because they don't have such an eclectic mind, <laughs> an eclectic, you know, basket of things to be picking from. <laughs> and so it feels like all those things are coming into order. It was not kind of such a, a random life after all. You know, it was all coming so that I had all those different experiences that took me where I am now. So tell me how it feels like uh, being things as diverse as a ballerina and an entrepreneur and a cancer survivor and all the other things, all the many things that you are. Tell, tell me how those things feel like they're coming together for you. Oh, yes. So I guess my... Um, as you said, I was, a, I was a ballerina. That was the first thing I did before I studied science and engineering. And uh, so I started my life learning about arts and being creative before I even learned math and science. So I feel that now in creating this new company and this new product and this new service that didn't exist, I'm really using my creativity in ways that I've never been able to to be kind of like in a blank canvas doing some things like this, um, you know, and then my skills that I learned as an entrepreneur, as an engineer, as a marketer and all the different uh, roles I have played, they are very handy now because I'm trying to solve a social problem and I have some skills that I can pick from to build something with it. Right. Yes. You, you have an extraordinary background of skills. And so maybe let's start with what is the social problem? What is this mission that you're on that has you so uh, excited, <laughs> clearly excited? And maybe I'm inspired. I, I, you'll probably see him at some point. Our, we call him our dog. He's, he's, he's actually by um, definition, most people would call him a cat, but he behaves like a dog. So we call him our dog bean. But he's, he's the definition of bright eyed and bushy tailed because he has both. But you seem very bright-eyed and wide-eyed and enthusiastic this morning, much like he is a lot of the time. And so tell <laughs> me about this, this mission you're on with this business that you've started. I guess I should say that I'm a three-year cancer survivor. And uh, a year ago... Congratulations, I, uh, Sylvie. Thank you very much. Uh, actually, it was last month, so it's very recent. And COVID pandemic started, and um, we all saw the disparities in mortality. And when the first numbers were released, I just spent weeks, you know, crawling the internet to find data that they, they hadn't posted yet about disparities, but I really had a, a suspicion that it was going to be the case. Um, and so when I found the first report that came out that was showing, you know, that Blacks and Hispanics were dying of COVID 40% and then you know, bigger numbers. Um, this came on top of knowing that Blacks are dying of cancer at 40% higher rates. Um, and um, as a cancer survivor, as someone that, you know, got a chance to, to leave, a second chance to leave, I felt really deeply distraught. I really felt that, you know, this, this is unfair. It really shouldn't be your race, your ethnicity, that is dictat dictating that you have a right to health. So I started to do some research to look into this more deeply. And um, I found that uh, it was not just COVID and cancer, but every serious chronic illness, you know, Black have been dying at higher rates for more than four decades. And this was 
I don't know, I lived on my life and I didn't know that, but somehow I, I digged into the number and it's really affected me deeply. It may be an obvious question, but let me ask it anyway, if you don't mind. Why did it affect you so deeply? Oh, yes. Thank you. It's, it's, uh, it's not an obvious question because I actually I was surprised by why was I so touched? And um, I really believe that it's because I had cancer. If I didn't have cancer and the pandemic had come, I don't think I would be doing what I'm doing today. I would have been very distraught, but not to the point of dropping everything I'm doing, you know, going into my savings and uh, to, to try to build a solution and, you know, putting all my eggs into one basket and say, you know, this is what I'm going to do with my life. And uh, um, I, I, I can't say for sure, but I don't think I, w- I would have been as compelled to do something. I think cancer took me close to mortality, close to being um, hopeless, you know, uh, close to being helpless, <laughs> close to feeling the biggest pain that I have ever felt in my life. And I, I really understood what it's like to be so sick that that you can die of this sickness um, at a level I, I, I don't think I understood, even if I knew people, you know, even in my family who died on, of cancer. And um, I think cancer really opened up this huge well of compassion inside me for the suffering of, of people in the world, but even more especially for the suffering of people that are you know, affected by life-threatening illnesses. And uh, if there is anything I can do to help change that and make some people less hopeless, it will be a life worth lived. And so tell me, Sylvie, what was it like for you to experience that physical pain as well as have to grapple with the very real possibility that you weren't going to be here? Yes. Um, that was shocking. Um, that was definitely a big shock to me to learn that, um, you know, be given like a prognosis <laughs> or like, you know, I mean, it, 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 it was not how I lived my life before, you know, I've been sick before, but I, I, I've never, um, uh, I mean, I remember when I was a child or in my in, in my teens, I was in Portugal in the sea and there was this huge tempest and I really thought I was going to die. I was like alone on the beach and um, there was one rock and with wood things that I attached myself to and I was able to save my life. But in that instant, it was very quick you know then the wave stopped and it was like oh i'm not dead (laughs) um but cancer it's a much kind of like um you know it's like being on boiling water (laughs) for for a very slow time right uh and so you're in this um fear um and so i i had to in order for me to be able to to function because um, I'm a single person and I went through cancer by myself. I I couldn't collapse and um, I luckily I have tools. I'm a mindfulness practitioner. I have my meditation practice, and I even went on some uh, retreats to uh, face kind of like what it's like to die. And uh, when I did that during my cancer journey. I felt a deep joy for being alive in this moment, even if death can come, a big appreciation for this very moment. And so the way I managed to survive was not in thinking about death, but in becoming someone who is more appreciative of beauty and what is happening in this instant than I have ever done before. I mean, I would take deep joy in just, I still do, seeing just a little bird on my window, <laughs> all the sunshine and feeling the warmth on my body. 
do things I was taking for granted before. They helped me every day. And I realized that I had a lot to be grateful for in this moment. So I was never thinking about the future, not even about next week. You know, people would tell me, what are you going to do next year? Or <laughs> when, you, when you all do things. And it just was not it, completely out of my mind. Just focused on making it to the end of the day, go to bed and start over. And in the process of becoming cancer-free, you've also decided to start this company. And it, it seems like just sort of watching you from a distance that there's been a catharsis of sorts around uh, your new company as well as grappling with cancer. Yes. You, you mean the catharsis in kind of like an internal change? Yeah, that, that you're, you're a very mission-driven entrepreneur yes. and that... that yes you trying to make a difference for others is born yes. of this experience. At least that's how I interpret it from a distance. But how yes. is it for you, Sylvie? Yes, no, it is exactly. I mean, it started first small. It started during cancer treatment when I was feeling the pain. I had this flash of insight. I had this flash of insight that told me I actually have the skills of an experienced designer, you know, I've, 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 you know, like, like you and a lot of people in, in innovation. So I have a chance to see very closely what is poorly designed in this experience that is adding to my stress. And that if I can relate it to the health providers, I can make a difference for future patients. And this kind of like focus on it's not my pain, but it's actually a chance, an opportunity to turn this into easing the experience of other people uh, was transformative for me. And so my initial idea, it started it, during my cancer treatment was, oh, wow, I need to teach healthcare providers about what it really feels like to be a cancer patient undergoing treatment so they can design a better cancer experience for cancer patients. And I wrote a paper on my treatment experience that's um, in a medical journal. I had never, I'm not a medical person. I was downloaded 2,000 times and was very successful. Um, and so first it started on wanting to improve the cancer experience for other cancer patients. And then when the pandemic started, it added this layer of wanting to improve the experiences for BPOC patient, Black, Indigenous, and people of colors, because um, providers are not fully able to see what it's like to be a cancer patient. And if you add the layer of, you know, the black box of the cancer experience and then the black box of racism and, and racial bias, you can understand how health providers have a me myopic understanding of the experience of black patients. And this is what we see now with vaccination and uh, COVID vaccination. You know, there was an article in the New York Times that was a couple of days ago. It was talking about blacks don't have a vaccine attitude problem. <laughs> they have a vaccine access problem, right? The healthcare is very quick at saying, you know, it's, oh, blacks are not getting the care because, you know, they, they don't have a good attitude. Um, they don't trust us. You know, it's always Blacks people fault. And what I would like to empower the healthcare system is to actually see the unseen needs of Black patients and their own contribution to bias that is unintended, but their own contribution to health disparities that is actually in every single step of the healthcare system that is excluding black people, Hispanic people. So we hear this word all the time now, systemic racism. And so you have had an experience of, quote, systemic racism in the healthcare system? I have witnessed. Um, so my first experience was more altruistic. Um, and, but it, it was very visceral is, um, I had to go to treatment every day and 
I was in the waiting room for, for a long time. And I was very distraught by the fact that I went to one of the top cancer centers, top five cancer centers in the country. I didn't see a single black patient during my entire treatment. And I knew that this hospital is located less than three miles away from a very large black community. Where are those people? Why are they not here? Why are they dying at higher rates? And that, you know, I, I, I was a privileged black person to be in that hospital, but I felt distraught that other black people didn't have a chance to be in that hospital. As far as my experience is concerned, I had uh, a pretty bad cancer experience. I can't tell you that uh, it's because I am black. I'm asking myself the question as I'm writing my book right now, which I'm almost done with. Um, but certainly uh, a lot of errors, miscommunication. I had a botched surgery, um, a lot of pain that was unnecessary. Now, sometimes, you know, people have opinions about why uh, a certain individual's care isn't as good as it, it could have been. Uh, you know, maybe that person wasn't an educated patient or maybe they didn't have family with them who could advocate for them and, and so forth and so on. So you, you hear these things. Um, yes. But that said, it, it just seems, it, it seems insane when you look at the numbers that it couldn't be so many people, right? <laughs> well, yeah. How could so many people, I mean, just to put it bluntly, right. How could so many people be that stupid and have nobody yeah. who cares about them? Right. If those are the reasons why some people don't get good care, it can't just be that it's like, you know, when we had Terry Williams on from one United bank, yeah. you know, when you look at the economic numbers, it, you can say what you want, but the numbers are the numbers. There's a reason the average American black family is, is worth uh, 10x less 17? Yeah. than the American. Yeah, I, I, right. It's like, well, yeah, there's got to yeah. be more. It's not that black people are lazy. It's not the answer. No. It can't be the answer or stupid or, or whatever fucking answer people dream up to justify some of these horrific, horrific numbers. And so you use the word unintended earlier, Sylvie. Um, maybe say yes. more about, you know, <laughs> what, so that. I'm so glad that you're speaking on this. Um so it's a it's a polite way to help showing people that you know I don't the same way I don't think that black people are stupid the same way I don't think that white people are you know all racist I think that a lot of things are happening that uh, people are causing a lot of harm that is unintended and I think that um, you know there certainly ha has been racist people in the healthcare industry. But the, the numbers that we are seeing today, they are not conscious racism trying to go after Blacks. Um, I think it's, you know, two things. I think, you know, we're both in, in, in entrepreneurship and I think that um, healthcare has really a very dismal understanding of the patient experience, the way we understand the customer experience in, in, in the high-tech se sector. And um, as such, the process are really not patient-centric, even though they write this in brochures everywhere. So when you don't understand the patient journey, the lived experience of the patient, you're causing a lot of harm unintendedly. That's what I meant by that. You know, people are focusing on, on doctors. It's always the thought of doctors. You know, doctors are not empathetic and all of those things. Well. My doctors during my cancer treatment, you know, were empathetic and I had all those problems. Those problems were caused by systemic issues in the medical process itself, very poorly designed. So one, it's poorly designed. On top of it, it's designed by white people that have no idea what it's like to be a person of color and no idea what are the barriers that those people are encountering, it's unendingly excluding black patients. And it's not an access problem. You know, people are saying, oh, you know, blacks is because 
they don't have insurance. Yes, there are many black people that that can't afford health insurance, but it is really just as much a problem of care and treatment. Even the blacks that have have access are not getting the standard of care. There was a big report that uh, came out by the American Association of Cancer Research. It was showing that 40% more women are dying of of breast cancer. 110% more black men are dying of prostate cancer. And that 50% of black cancer patients are as likely to get radiation therapy than white cancer patients when it's proven that radiation therapy is effective in treating some cancers. And so why are these numbers, you know, why? How can this be true in 2021 in the United States of America, a country we keep getting told is, quote, the greatest country in the world? How can this be true? It is sadly true because the processes, you know, those dinosaur processes that we are subject to when we utilize healthcare services has have been designed by white people for white people from the beginning and um without any understanding whatsoever that a black person is not just a white person with paint on their face <laughs> yes uh, terry williams when she was when she was on explained how it's um you know it's a culture right Yes. It's a different way of being. It's a different way of beings. And, you know, that there, there is a, there are different needs. You know, I think what, one thing that has really fascinated me my, my whole life working in technology is not just the functional needs, but it's really the emotional needs of the customers. And when you look at, at um, racism and racial bias, it's, you know, it's by definition an, an emotional experience for the patient, right? You are subject to something that contricts you because it's just painful to have to go through this over and over again. Um, and so you need to understand what it's like to be a Black patient experiencing bias. That's what my company is doing. Um, I'm starting a company to help do what is missing in the healthcare system. The whole system is trying to address disparities by address by educating black patients, <laughs> thinking that if you educate black patients on clinical trials and all of those things, you know they are going to be. Uh, magically doing better but it's not looking at what i call the internal determinant of health which are the factors that exist inside the healthcare system that excludes black and so what are those things and and specifically i'd love to hear all about what you're planning with your new company to address these problems yes so to put it in a simple way it's as if you were looking at the experience of BIPOC patients in looking through a straw and you only see part of it and you're trying to solve their problem based on that very limited view of their experience. With all your, even if you're not a racist and you're really eager to help, you're missing information. So I want to expand providers' understanding of the lived experience of Blacks, Browns, and people of color. Because, you know, it goes back to what we do in technology and in innovation. We, the the first thing you need to do is empathize and understand the needs of the customer before you build anything successful. Yes. If you go and build something without understanding the needs of the customers, you are not going to build something successful. And, you know, the second thing is, uh, I think the same thing is happening in, in a high tech system, but, but it's uh, much more visible in, in, in healthcare and in education because, you know, people are dying. But every process, every system that is built is being built with design tools 
that are just assuming that the other person is just like you. Design thinking has greatly, greatly helped advance the whole industry in better understanding the needs of customers. But it has miserably failed in addressing any racial inequity. You can't use design thinking to solve a racial problem. And so uh, do we need to rethink a hospital as a result? Do we need to rethink cancer treatment as a result? Do we need to rethink um, education around healthcare issues and topics, whether it's vaccinations or masks or any other matter? Is it is it a whole scale sort of uh, reevaluation that needs to get done now or what, what needs to get done? You know, there are a few places in the country that are uh, building uh, the new medical schools of the future to uh, to do this. And um, I'm uh, in conversation with uh, with a couple of them. There is definitely, you know, after going through cancer treatment and seeing how poorly it is designed, you know, I mean, the stress that is imposed on us that is not necessary because people have a poor understanding of the patient experience may have made me more tired, but for some people, it may have killed them. So yes, we need to redesign the healthcare system and we need to redesign cancer treatment. I'm starting with the first step is we need to understand the journey of a patient of color. We can't do anything without understanding their experience. Um, I have ambitions, but you know, I, I have seen a lot of companies fail and I've had some failures and I know that you have to start and be focused, right? And so I am starting with what I know, which is the cancer industry, um, the cancer sector. I'm starting with blacks with cancer. I'm uh, myself, I'm a black multicultural person, actually have blood from four continents, but, you know, I'm black and um, I identify as black American in the census. So I'm starting with blacks with cancer and I am not working uh, in a bubble. I am teaming with a university to do this work so that I work with oncologists to validate and co-create instruments that are going to be measured for their impact. And I chose Emory University in Atlanta because Emory is located in Atlanta. It's the second largest black urban area in the country after New York City. And it's a university that has a cancer center and the faculty also works at the public hospital Grady in Atlanta, which is one of the largest public hospitals in the country. I mean, it's mainly treating patients of colors. So I found their enthusiasm for what I'm doing delightful. <laughs> you know, uh, I've spoke to several other universities that, you know, told me, oh, this is brilliant, but, you know, didn't really, you know what I mean, right? So, so yes, yeah, so we are working together. We applied uh, jointly for a grant and we just won a $750,000 grant from Genentech. Félicitations, Sylvie. Félicitations. <laughs> Thank you. This is, uh, this is amazing. I mean, it's, it's a large amount for health equity. It's also, um, it's a huge achievement for me as a patient because all the grants have been given to actually providers to solve the problem. So I'm a patient that's stepping up to do something. This, this large amount has not been given to a patient, let alone to a black patient. And uh, I'm working with oncology providers to help validate my solution. It's not oncology providers are building something and asking me what I think, which is kind of the usual way the problem is solved. So it's a, it's a major, it's a major change. I'm really excited about, about this grant. I guess this is what I should have told you at the beginning when you said, why are you smiling? <laughs> I've been smiling for a couple months. <laughs> I remember, did, I think I saw you announce it for the first time on LinkedIn. Am I remembering that right, Sylvie? You know, I only, I only announced it maybe, um, 
a month ago or so. Yeah. Uh, I think, yes, on Twitter and on LinkedIn, yes. But I could hear the sort of... <laughs> the, I, 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 I could hear the fireworks in your voice, so to speak, in your posting. It, it And the thing that strikes me is you are a legendarily accomplished person. Thank you. And of course, we're just getting to know each other, but you know, you've performed on some of the greatest stages in the world. You're a scientist, you're an entrepreneur, you have this incredible tech career. Uh, but th it seemed to me when you made that announcement about you getting the grant that um, in spite of your extraordinary list of legendary accomplishments that you held this particular accomplishment in a special place. Oh, yes. It's the biggest accomplishment of my life because I think because it's coming so so quickly about after recovering from cancer. So it's as if I'm having a second life and I'm having a chance to start a second life at a much wiser age. <laughs> and um, this accomplishment, it touches my heart. You know, when you have a success in business, it's, it touches your head. An accomplishment that touches your heart, nourishes your heart, and is going to help the life of others. I've never done anything so beautiful. It's interesting that you say that. In a part of my life right now, uh, I'm on a very important sacred mission with a group of other people. And we are going through a very real battle. And the people we're in a battle with are mercenaries who want money. And we're, we're destroying them. We're laying them to waste. And something happened in the last couple of weeks in our battle with these people. And uh, I said, not even God can help a mercenary who runs into the wrong group of missionaries. Ooh, I like that. Because when you're somebody like you, uh, you're committed in a way that... Um, the average business person, the average entrepreneur is not committed. That's, that's what I've been told, you know, um, you know, our common friend who introduced us has told me he's never seen anyone who is more committed than I am. Uh, and he's seen many entrepreneurs who's stuck to ideas. It was Duncan who introduced us, was it not? Yes, Duncan. Yeah. One of the smartest guys I know. <laughs> And he, he, he admires the shit out of you. There's no question about that. <laughs> oh, he's a wonderful person. I do have one question for you. So at what age were you performing at what you would call an elite level as a dancer, as a ballerina? Oh, yes. So we have a different system. In, 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 uh, I grew up in France in education. And By the so, way, your um, accent is so wonderful. I could listen to you read Wikipedia to me quite happily. <laughs> um, I tried to, to lose it, but, you know, now I kind of. Oh, please don't. Please don't. You live in San Francisco um, now. Is that right? You know, actually, now in Menlo Park, I was in San Francisco, but I, I moved down to Menlo Park. OK. Um, and. Um, so in this country, in the U.S., uh, if you're going to be one of the top performing artists and you have the privilege to get into Juilliard in New York, that's where you go. So in France, we have the National Conservatory for that. And the, when you end your studies in this conservatory, um, there is a big uh, competition. And um, in Juilliard, it's called the first prize uh, in the conservatory in France. It's, it's called the gold medal. And so I, I won a gold medal in ballet and I was 16. Uh, probably, I mean, I'm sure the first black woman to earn a gold medal in ballet. Um, but... Um, yeah, so it's, you know, it, it's like winning a first prize from... from from Juilliard, it's really the best of the best performing artists in the world that that gets this to this level. And uh, unfortunately, uh, my parents didn't want me to uh, pursue despite this um, incredible achievement. So um, 
I um, I had to study math and physics like they did and become an engineer, which is what I did. I I I had you know good grades in math and physics, so I went into into this. I was very depressed. Um, I realized that actually only now through my cancer journey, um, because the only thing that really helped me um, emotionally and mentally recover was joining a writing group that's for cancer patients. And in that group, we we had the way it was set up and the prompts that we were writing, we really were writing from the heart. And I started to write like I have never written before. And though that's how what prompted me writing a blog that became viral and read in 100 countries. Uh, the last post I read was like, got like four times um, more shares than the average New York Times post. So now I'm writing a book. But this whole thing started in that workshop and in me finding this voice. And I remember in the exercise one day, we would write and then read it aloud to the group. And I wrote, I lost my soul when I was 16. It came back when I had cancer. So. Uh, I lived my life and yes, I was externally successful, but my soul and my body were not in the same place. And I'm extremely excited now about this grant and what I'm doing, but um, I think I'm just as excited as I was when I won the gold medal in ballet. It's, it's, it's really my heart, you know, so. And how did the, the learnings you had to compete at a world-class level and win at 16 years old. I mean, that's an extraordinary thing at such a young age. How does that inform your behavior as an entrepreneur? Oh, yes. Um, It really shaped a lot of my life. It informed, it shaped my behavior as a cancer patient. (laughs) It shapes my, my, uh, my daily life. It shapes everything. Um, You know, it, it gave me an extraordinary discipline um, that I still rely on to this day um, because that's what it takes to get to a very high level in, you know, as an athlete or in dance or in music or, you know, anything like this. Talent and discipline. <laughs> talent and discipline. Yeah. Yes. What would you say more of talent or discipline? More of discipline. Because um, I actually was not the most innately talented ballerina. And there were a lot of things, like a lot of people have their body built in a different way that certain things are easier. So I worked really hard to get to where I am. And I really tortured my body, if you want. Uh, And uh, what I had is my soul, the same soul that you see shining today. And so when you add that with the discipline of the work, that creates magic. Yes, no doubt. And what's your dream for your new business, Sylvie? My dream for my new business? I'm allowed to dream now. I love it. (laughs) You know? You sure sure are with me. (laughs) So, you know, if once I validate this stuff, like I would, I, I would really like to have an impact on, on medical education for students and, um, you know, uh, professional continuing education of, of medical uh, professional. You know, what exists today to help professional uh, do a better job uh, is is miserable so it's like you know we can't blame the physician uh for example i i i'm doing research now and so i had to take uh, a certification to do human subject research is some um, ethics uh qualification that shows that i can i can do research with uh with patients and um the curriculum was so poorly done for like giving cultural competence to researcher. And I'm like, no wonder why 
you know, no black patients are like enrolling in clinical trials. You know, it, it, they don't have the tools. So I really want to empower, starting with oncologists, medical professional, to see black patients in their full humanity and see the needs that they are not able to see today. And if they can see those needs, then they can have a chance at solving them. We can't solve what we don't see. Amen. Hallelujah, sister. <laughs> Amen. Hallelujah, brother. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love to talk to you, Christopher. <laughs> I love to talk to you, Sylvie. I think you're incredible and, and so inspiring. And as you're talking, I don't know why this is in my head, but it, it's in my head. So I'll share it with you. It's like, hmm. You know, I look at you and I just think, wow, warriors come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes <laughs> because I look at you and here's, you know, you're incredibly presented and you have the elegance of a ballerina and you have this incredible voice and accent and all these things. And yet you are kicking ass and taking names. <laughs> I guess, yes, I am. I am a warrior. I've been a, a warrior my entire life. Um, it's, um, you know, it, it's not easy to be born as a black person. Um, so I, I became a warrior in kindergarten the first time I went to school. Hmm. What happened? Well, you know, I, I'm writing in my book right now, and I have what, this, this one memory of being in kindergarten and um, playing with kids, like I can't remember what game we were playing, but I remember this little white boy who started to giggle and point at me and told me how ugly I was because my skin was the color of shit. And I started to cry. And um, luckily for me, um, ever since, I was in kindergarten. There was always a nice white boy who volunteered to be my bodyguard. <laughs> so, you know, um, I didn't get hurt or anything, but that, that really stayed on me. And um, it, it's, um, I mean, you know, working in technology was not easy as a black person. And, you know, I, I have a lot of talent that a lot of people don't have. And I suffered from it not being seen and recognized. So I'm, I'm taking my own route because I don't fit in a box. That's the only way I can thrive. It's so interesting to me that you say that because for many of us, entrepreneurship is a way to bet on ourselves when others won't bet on us. Yes. When we're underestimated. Yes. Kind of like getting fed up on that. And it's like, you know what? I'm going to be my own boss and I'm going to create things that are more creative than you can create. Yeah. And, and you're a much nicer person than me, but there's a, there's a real F you. I'm going to show you part of it for me that comes with it too. <laughs> <laughs> I know what it's like to be counted out at every turn. Well, that's how you created this amazing podcast, right? <laughs> and everything else that you're doing. Um, and I think that's 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 how we we are connecting to at a human level, and that's what make your show so fantastic. Is is this you know capacity to? I think we all have a capacity to relate to one another, no matter what shape, form, size, color we are. Yes. And, and you know, the interesting thing, I people ask me about this all the time because of the word different and stuff. And on one level, um, many of us connect on our similarities, on our shared humanity, on our shared core values around certain things. Uh, shared experiences. If you met somebody who went to the same school you did or grew up in the same town, 
there's a connection that we can all have. So there's similarities, similar interests that bring human beings together, and that's great. And most of us want to be loved and respected for what makes us uniquely us. And um, it's a painful thing when you think nobody, nobody cares about who I am uniquely or I get discounted because of who I am uniquely. And that leads some of us to a, uh, oh yeah, I'll show you entrepreneurial attitude. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, yes, fundamentally every human being is longing to be seen, right? And unfortunately, um, our system and, and um, you know, whether it's educational, medical, <laughs> uh, corporate system um, is not allowing often for, for that. And so we need to, um, one, value those kind of chances that we have to speak to one another like we're speaking today but also bring humanity into the work that we do. You know, um, I'm helping Blacks right now. It, it doesn't matter that it's Black. You know, the same model that I designed can be used for Hispanics and for everything. And um, at the end of the day, it's not even a racial problem that I'm solving. I'm solving an ethical problem. Do no harm. And if you know the harm that you're causing, you have a chance to solve it. Yes. Yes. And, you know, the people that are excluded from the system, they want to be seen. They want to be seen. They want to be heard. And if you can see them and hear them, you can serve them. Sylvie, you're an angel. Oh, <laughs> You're so kind. Now, clearly, oh. I could talk to you forever, but I know you have a um, a system to fix. <laughs> <laughs> One, step. <laughs> One step at a time. Are there any other things you'd like to touch on, Sylvie, before we wrap up? I guess the one thing that uh, I would like to, to share with you is that I've been kind of thinking about this, and I, you know, I love that you... You're an entrepreneur and like you connect with what I'm doing in in a in a different level than people in the medical field. And um a lot of founders, you know, we start companies and um a lot of people we don't have money to start companies and, and we we um use our savings and 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 and, and do this. But I was reflecting when I was having breakfast this morning. There is something different in what I'm doing. You know, I spent the last year really living on a shoestring student budget and used up my savings and gave it all I had thinking, you know, if I was born to do this, I will find a way to get, you know, some financial backing before the end of the year that my money runs out. Uh, and I tried everything, but there wasn't any, I know what the entrepreneurs do it, but it's kind of like, oh, I'm going to get it back through money or something. I'm going to get more money later or something like this. I, I'm not sure how, you know, from a, solving a social problem, it, it, it really was really, a, for me, an act of generosity, you know, of, 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 of giving this year of my life and you know the remaining later but this year of really deep sacrifices to to try to help others and that's very meaningful to me it's so amazing that you say that sylvie one of the things that me and my uh writing partners eddie and cole have been talking about a lot pretty much since covid came out was this idea mm -hmm. of um 
of uh, radical generosity as part of what it now takes to build a category designing company. So we talk about being thoughtfully aggressive and radically generous. And if you look today, in addition to that, I've been honored to do an ongoing podcast series with Naveen Chada at, uh, at Mayfield Capital um, because a big mission they're on is what they call Conscious VC and Conscious Capital. And so there's yeah. this whole thing that's been very present in my life for the better part of a decade around that mission-driven entrepreneurs, around doing things that are radically, that, that entrepreneurship when it's when it at its in its greatest form is an act of radical generosity. Yes, I I really <laughs> I love to talk to you more about that. You know because I I struggled with it when I started this this business because um you know I've been in the regular kind of VC tech world and all my friends you know many of my friends are. Uh, venture capitalist and and I've been kind of like working with this model so when I started to, to think about this idea what did I do is I I wrote an executive summary and I sent to my friends you know and they were all like oh let me see I don't think that I could turn this around and sell it in five years or you know and I'm like I'm not sacrificing my life so that you know this is going to be like turn around in five years and forgotten. And um, I, I just was having a very hard time making people understand why I'm doing this. But what I find is, is beautiful and what I, I really challenge myself in this, and, be, and maybe because I'm from you know, a for-profit world, is that I'm actually seeking to build a business model that is actually going to make money because that's the way to scale. I am not, I don't think I can be successful by applying for grants every year to build something. So I need to be, to build a successful business that does good in the, in the world. And, you know, it may end up doing a lot more profit. Who knows? But the fact that it's making enough profit to keep expanding and solving bigger and bigger problems is how I'm looking at building it. And so I'm seeking to engage with conscious investors. I haven't spoken to them yet because I, I was just like completely busy, you know, applying for this grant. It's it's crazy. It's 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 a lot harder to apply for grants than to pitch a VC. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, what you have to, to do, the amount of work is insane. And this was actually the very first grant I applied to in my life. It's like unbelievable. <laughs> but um, yes, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking in the future, you know, assuming that this project is actually demonstrating results and that uh, a course can be developed and sold and all of those things, you know, am I going to go conscious for profit? or non-profit way. I'm, I'm keeping those two options, you know, open. And, uh, you know, if you're very interested in this, I'd, I'd love to discuss that with you uh, at greater length. Yes, I've talked to many entrepreneurs about it. And should we be an S-corp or how should we think about this and double bottom lines and triple bottom lines? And this is an area that I'm very fascinated by. And I, I think regardless of the architecture of the company, profit, not profit, what can, you know, et cetera, et cetera, the thing that I find fascinating is this mission-driven notion and that so many entrepreneurs today are thinking, yes, I'm a capitalist. Yes, we want to make money, but we want to make a difference. Yeah. And it reminds me, there's this great old quote from, um, that, uh, from, uh, from Walt Disney that I've always loved and kind of held on to where he says, we don't make movies to make money. We make money so we can make more movies. That's exactly the point. I love this quote, you know, that's the whole philosophy behind my business is I want this business to make money so I can keep doing it uh, and, and not rely on, on, on taxes, on, on, on grants. But, you know, right now I'm telling myself for the next couple of years, um, that's the duration of my grant, it doesn't matter what I am, you know. 
whether I'm a for-profit or a non-profit or something. What matters is that I'm, I'm building a prototype, I test it, I validate it, and it works. That's the only thing that matters. After that, we'll see what's the best business model to go to the next step. Very good, Sylvie. Anything else? I think uh, that's it for today, but I'd love to speak again. <laughs> Bless you, of course. You're welcome back anytime. You're incredibly inspiring. And having watched your journey now for a while, it really is breathtaking to see you in this place doing what you're doing today. Congratulations. Oh, you're, you're a legend. Thank you. thank you so much. I'm just so, so, I mean, I, I just woke up so happy to like be in, in your show. I think it's just so wonderful that you're having conversations with people that are kind of the successful outliers or I don't know <laughs> you call them like thinking differently but we are not celebrated in in this world in the general world right and um you know I find that um you know I win this grant and now like everybody is like oh great 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 and congratulating me and it's all these people have completely ignored me for 20 years you know <laughs> it's, it's like I've been the same person <laughs> It's not like one day you become great. That's not how it works. No, and the the uh, the warrior and pirate in me, I remember those people. Yes. And one of my favorite things as a podcaster is I ha I've had a lot of people shit on me as a podcaster. And I got into a lot of trouble last year over some public stances on everything from defund the police to mask wearing to the election and everything in between. Oh, wow. And... Um, <clears throat> One of my, one of my, and I know this makes me a bad person, <laughs> but one of my joys is um, there are people who said shitty things about me and there are people who were invited on my podcast in the beginning and turned me down because they didn't think I was important enough for them. And uh, I always love it when one of their PR people sends me a note and says <laughs> they would like to be on my podcast. And it's like, oh yeah. You can go fuck yourself. <laughs> but that's why you're a better person than me. <laughs> oh, I'm, uh, I'm not there, but I'm working. I'm working on forgiveness. <laughs> but, um, but yes, it's, it's, it's mind blowing to see how, like, like you said, you know, your podcast is successful, you're successful. And then suddenly you know, people who ignored you are like, you're the best. And <laughs> One of the things that I, I post this every once in a while on an ongoing basis, the people who laughed at your idea one day will take credit for it on their LinkedIn profile. Isn't that crazy? It's happened to me more times than I can count. So I know it to be true. And yes. uh, I love that. Uh, you're the, uh, the elegant ballerina version of entrepreneur warrior and I, I i appreciate it tremendously <laughs> <laughs> the ballerina entrepreneur the ballerina yes. social entrepreneur <laughs> yes all right okay. sylvie bless Pleasure. you and i hope you will come back i would love to thank you christopher have a wonderful day you too stay legendary my friend Oh, stay legendary, my friend, too. <laughs> <laughs> You're so awesome. Thank you. Well, there she is, the legendary Sylvie Lieton. And uh, if you enjoyed this conversation, why not share it right now? Make no mistake. Uh, we deeply appreciate it when you share this oddcast. And most oddcast players have a button right there that you can hit and you can send this to somebody that you care about. Also, make sure you are subscribed to this oddcast because coming up next is uh, writer Michael Easter. And he's got a new book coming out called The, C the Comfort Crisis. And it's fantastic. And we have a legendary conversation about what really makes human beings happy and um, why sitting on our couch eating Pringles and drinking beer might not be the answer for a legendary life. Now, legendary businesses are flexible and adaptable, and they invest in their success, often ahead of the curve. 
That's where my friends at NetSuite by Oracle come in. They're the world's number one cloud business system, and they give you the visibility and control that you need to change on a dime. You see, with NetSuite, the flexibility is built in from strategically managing and changing your supply chain to uh, modifying or radically changing your business model or opening up new digital sales channels or whatever it is, the flexibility is built in and NetSuite is the platform for making legendary things happen in your business fast. Check out netsuite.com slash different today for your free product tour. That's netsuite.com slash different. And data is coming to everything. As a matter of fact, analysts tell us the amount of data created over the next three years will be more than the data created over the past 30 years. Wrap your head around that. And um, the digital transformations of late have materially improved humanity's ability on a whole number of levels. Uh, and of course, most notably, navigating the multiple crises that we've been dealing with. Data transformations exponentially uh, make things possible. They take exponential possibilities and turn them into exponential realities. And so the ability to create, capture, secure, share, and monetize data has become the strategic advantage. And that's where my friends at Splunk come in. Splunk is the leader in data to everything, bringing data to every question, every decision, and every action. Visit splunk.com slash D2E today. That's splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E, and learn how you can bring data to everything. All right. We would like to thank our good friends at Atranet, building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out atre.net today. Our friends at Spiro.ai are the proactive relationship management company. Check out SPIRO.ai today if you want to close more business. And who doesn't want to do that? Our friends at Bottleneck.online are there to provide you with a distant assistant. They've been physically distancing before physically distancing was a thing. And so if you want a legendary assistant, a human being who's powered by technology who uh, help scale you but never get anywhere near you, <laughs> visit my friends at bottleneck.online. Also, my friends at the nonprofit onelifefullylive.org are um, helping people build, uh, dream, build, and plan, and, and make happen. <laughs> i got to write that shit down. Anyway, One Life Fully Lived is a legendary organization that makes a difference to uh, thousands of people every year. If you got a couple shekels in your pocket, Check out onelifefullylive.org and consider making a donation. Also, while you're making a donation, visit dropincoalition.org. This is the field trip service, the charity that is working with uh, underserved children to fire them up about the power and the joy of learning science, technology, engineering, and math, and surfing. Check out the dropincoalition.org. And don't forget to go to lockhead.com and subscribe to Category Pirates. That's L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com. And click on Category Pirates. You can't miss it. All right, this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and all rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you that this podcast does get produced in a studio that contains nuts. Remember to teach entrepreneurship, support your local polymath, save water and shower with a friend. To quote David Lee Roth, I don't feel tardy. And uh, if you haven't changed your mind lately, how do you know you have one? Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. Um, Love you, Mom and Dad. Oh, and we are produced by the GOAT, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Show notes by GM Simon and... Uh, Sarah Knox and Jamie J make sure all of the technical awesomeness gets done around here and they build lockhead.com. All right, that's it. Hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Derek Chauvin. Sorry, Derek, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different.